Um, okay, so this is a course in, a, in applied apologetics, and basically what that means is we want to uh, understand a little bit more than perhaps we do now about the nature of our faith and the reasons why we make the claims that we make as biblical Christians. And then we want to try to defend our faith accurately and intelligently against the dominant worldviews and world religions that happen to be part of our culture. So we're not going to get into every little cult and world religion out there. We're not going to be talking about the Christadelphians because there's hardly any of them around anymore. But we are going to talk about a couple dominant cults, notably Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism. We're going to look at uh, at least three major world religions, notably the theistic religion known as Islam and the pantheistic religions of Buddhism and Hinduism. We are going to have a discussion about the nature of faith and rationalism within Christianity. We'll talk over the course of this, uh, our time together about miracles, about biblical archaeology, about the nature of scripture, about where reason and how reason and faith actually can go together. You don't have to pick one or the other. We'll get into naturalism, talk a little bit about evolutionary theory and all these kinds of great things. And then um, I would expect that we'll have a lot of bunny trails as you ask questions. So other things will sort of come up just as we, we spend the next few months together. So up on the board, basically we're, we're going to talk about the, the nature of apologetics and we'll, dis, we'll define what that is. We'll talk about dominant worldviews. You may or may not be familiar with worldviews, but increasingly people who are students of culture and sociologists and people who are interested in matters of faith uh, probably spend more time nowadays actually talking about worldviews than they do talk about world religions. Because worldviews, we discover, really undergird all of the major and minor world religions. But nevertheless, we're also going to talk about some of the dominant religions in our culture and talk about some how-tos, how to defend the faith. I'm gonna, this is not going to be an order. I'm going to kind of be integrating the how-tos with our uh, previous discussions. And then what I want to look at is clues. I'll describe what that means tonight, and proofs for the superiority of Christianity. So I believe that biblical Christianity is superior intellectually, emotionally, socially, and so forth and so on, vis-a-vis, -vis, over and against all other faith uh, claims. And uh, I would assume that many of you believe that too, but if you don't, hopefully you'll be convinced by the end of our time together. Okay? So uh, without further ado, let's uh, get right into our notes. Uh, we're going to start on page one. And uh, the first lecture is entitled, uh, Doing Apologetics in the Modern Era. By the way, we'll generally talk for about an hour, we'll take a break, and then we'll go for about 45 to 50 minutes, we'll be done by 8.30. Um, if you want to bring snacks, I'm not sure what's wrong with this, Mark. Where's Mark? He's bumping over here on me. better. If you want to bring snacks, you are welcome to do so. Okay? I will prepare the lessons, you prepare the food, and we'll all be one happy family. Okay? So perhaps you've had uh, a friend say something to you like this. All religions are the same. They essentially teach the same thing. All paths lead to God. No religion, no one religion is right. How many of you in some way, shape, or form have heard that in Canada. I want you to raise your hands. 
Okay, the vast majority, if not all of you, have your hands raised up. And uh, this, of course, is something that is somewhat unique to the Western world. By the Western world, we mean everything uh, from England over. And Europe is a little bit, mainland Europe is a little bit different, but uh, the Western world generally is defined as everything from the British Canal, uh, English Canal over this way. And in these countries that are part of the Western world, of course, there's a, a gathering, a mingling of different worldviews, different religions, different cultures, different perspectives. And there's a lot of pluses to that. On my street, we have people from all over the world. It's interesting to interact with them and learn about culture. But culture is not neutral because culture is often inundated with worldviews and religious perspectives. And as we've come into this country, which sort of is a salad bowl of worldviews and ideas, uh, we have been confronted with all sorts of different perspectives and all sorts of different ideas about what's right and wrong, including the dominant worldview in our culture that says there is no such thing as right or wrong. Okay, so this is a dominant, this is a dominant theme you'll hear in our discussions about apologetics. By the way, Joe and uh, John, you guys can come to the front. You don't have to sit back there unless you just really want to hang out by the coffee table. Yeah. Joe and John, everybody, you want to give them a hand? Okay, there we go. All right, Joe. So let's talk about uh, our culture. And of course, y you understand that when we're talking about any religion or any worldview, we're making broad, sweeping statements. There's obviously exceptions to every rule. There are people that might say, I'm a biblical Christian, but they actually don't believe certain things that 99% of other biblical Christians believe, but they still think they are one. So when it comes to uh, conversations around things like postmodernism or modernism, obviously there are different, uh, there are people that would say I'm a modernist or a postmodernist that may not agree with my definitions. Nevertheless, I think these are sort of standard definitions that most modernists or postmodernists would believe. So modernism, which uh, is sort of the generation from the age of the Enlightenment up to, some people say, in and around the 1940s, 1950s, uh, the modernists, many modernists who are not Christians would simply say, I don't believe the Bible is true. So, if you were living in the modern era, what you would try to do then is you would try to prove that the Bible is true. But we have an added problem or struggle in our culture. And that is that we live in a culture called postmodernism, and the postmodernism says, well, I'm not even sure that there is such a thing as truth. I'm not sure that truth exists. I need someone to get, go get Mark for me, because this thing's driving me insane. Sorry about that, I don't know what the problem is. Okay, I'll, I'll just try not to move until he shows up. So, the modernist says, I don't believe the Bible is true. The postmodernist says, I don't believe there is truth. So this is obviously a huge issue to try to take someone from a, a complete disbelief in truth period to believing in truth and then introducing them to the truth claims of Christianity. So broadly speaking, postmodernism could be defined as a philosophical system that downplays or denies the validity of objective truth or data. So some postmodernists aren't going to say, I don't believe in truth altogether, but they're at least going to downplay it and say, you know, it's, it's not really important for me to talk about truth. Now, those of you who uh, have had conversations with postmodernists, I'm sure at some point you've 
responded with something like this. Oh, you don't believe there is truth? Do you believe that truthfully, right? And so we understand that there's a sense in postmodernism where there's, it's sort of rationally illogical, it's contradictory, because the fact that a, a postmodernist can say, I don't believe that there is truth, is what? It's a truth claim. So you're making a truth claim that you don't believe in truth. And if you have conversations with postmodernists long enough, you'll, you'll discover that they actually can't think without making truth claims. They can't even have conversations without making truth claims. We all make truth claims, but postmodernists nev nevertheless either downplay it or deny it. So where do we see this philosophy? I would suggest to you we see this philosophy in our educational system. Uh, there's an increasing emphasis in education on process over content. Process over content. There's a downplaying of the authority of the instructor, the professor, and the teacher. And there's an emphasis on collaborative learning among students. This takes place not just within universities and elementary schools, but it also takes place within seminaries. So having studied in very, very conservative seminaries and having studied in very, very liberal seminaries, I can tell you there's a radical difference of educational philosophies between the two. So for instance, when I was studying at uh, one of Canada's most, this is just bouncing around and making noise and carrying on and... I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> I don't know if it's broken or... Do we have another one of these? Okay. Well, I'll just kind of run with this, but if it gets bad, I'll just have to shut it off and we won't have a recording. So in our educational system, there's uh, an emphasis on um, uh, process over content. So I, I, w I took a degree once, a graduate degree, in what's called homiletical theory, which is basically the study of how one communicates in sermon process, uh, sermon making. And one of the views that I was introduced to was called um, uh, roundtable homiletics. And basically, when I was first introduced, I don't even know what this means, it doesn't make sense to me, but it was described to me as this. There's some... There's actually a preaching theory that says that um, the content of uh, modern-day preaching uh, should not come from the Bible and it should not come from the preacher because if it comes from the Bible or from the preacher, it, it presupposes a, a, a measure or standard of authority that is above the hearer. So in this sermon theory or method, what is recommended is that pastors or preachers would form round table discussion groups. So let's say I would get all the people in the front row, they'd meet in my office every Tuesday or Wednesday, and we'd sit around and we'd collaboratively determine what is truth as representatives of the body of faith. We'd collaboratively determine how that truth is going to be communicated, and then I would, it would be my responsibility to preach it. Well, uh, clearly this is quite different than what you might be used to hearing in a uh, evangelical church or a biblical church, but this is a dominant and used method of preaching among some people who claim to be Christians. And what undergirds it is postmodernism, a desire to take authority away from books or individuals or uh, roles or offices and to kind of put everybody on the same level and 
and uh, have everybody sort of collaboratively determine what is true and what isn't true. Another place that we see this is in uh, government policy, uh, individual rights over objective truth. So, uh, of course, the gay rights movement is infamous for this. They are not interested, they are very offended in any discussions about objective truth, about the rightness or wrongness of a homosexual lifestyle, about issues of morality. The discussion has been moved away from anything to do with faith or religion or ethics purely to an issue uh, about individual rights. And so in the uh, gay rights movement in our country, the language, you know this, that is used to defend and propagate the position is the exact same language that's used of the civil rights movement or the exact same language that's used when it comes to employment equality. It's individual rights, it's my, it's my life, it's my uh, 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 rights as an individual, and we don't want to talk about anything to do with objective truth. I would argue that the reason why uh, there's been a, a rise in uh, homosexuality in our culture is because of the movement away from any, any desire to discuss objective truth claims to uh, individualism. And then religious institutions. Uh, we have churches, uh, we have uh, other groups, uh, even synagogues that um, uh, sort of promote or promulgate the idea that we're to accept everyone, including what everyone believes, and that all religions are essentially the same. Now, many Christians believe that postmodernism started in and around 1960, 1950. Now, it is true that postmodernism, as I have described it, has become the dominant worldview since about 1950 or 60 onward in the Western world. But if you study history, what you'll discover is that the underlying philosophy and beliefs of postmodernism are actually uh, founded and grounded in much more ancient uh, societal views, worldviews, and philosophies of life. So if you look, for instance, at the Roman world within which Jesus lived and the disciples ministered, you'll find that there's actually a lot of parallels between what was taking place back then in terms of their view of ethics and morality and what we see in our culture today. So I want to give you an example of this from the Bible. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John 18, verses 28 to 39. And of course, this is a record, an account of Jesus' dialogue with a man named Pilate, a Roman ruler, a person in a position of authority, just prior to his crucifixion. So this is Jesus before Pilate. Now, I'm going to read it to you, and as I read it to you, what I want you to do is pay careful attention to the angles and the content of the debate or conversation that Jesus is having with Pilate, because I think in this conversation, there's some interesting things that we can extract that have relevance to uh, our uh, responsibilities as apologists. By the way, for those of you that are sitting in the back, there are three chairs up here, there's three in the middle row, and we have lots of notes, so if maybe someone could uh, distribute those just so everyone has a note package. So here we go, John 18, verses 28 to 39. <clears throat> then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the government, governor's headquarters, and it was very uh, early morning. 
Uh, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, now notice the nature of the question. What accusation do you bring against this man? So in that question, he's looking for what? Substance. He wants some evidence. He wants, you could say, some proof. He wants, some, uh, he wants a smoking gun. So what accusations do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, he would not have delivered, we would not have delivered him over to you. Now, what can we see in that question? They don't provide uh, any evidence, but they imply that, well, why would he be here if he hadn't done something wrong? Which is kind of a goofy argument, but that's the argument that's made. So then Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So there's a couple things there. Uh, he wasn't convinced that Jesus should be dragged before him. He also recognized that the Jews had some law that they governed people by, but it wasn't his law. So there's different truth claims he understood even in his own society. And the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put someone to death. So now they start quoting the Bible, or at least uh, applying the Bible to the cultural circumstances within which they had. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him and said, now here's where it gets really interesting. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? So Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting and I would be delivered over to the Jews. I would not have been delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate said to him, so are you a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I came into, come into the world. To bear witness to what? The truth, he says. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But then Pilate says to him, what is truth? Which is a fascinating question. and sounds a lot like a Canadian kind of a question. After he said this, he went back outside and said to the Jews, I find no guilt in him. He makes a truth statement, or a, a, at least a sort of a didactic, uh, clear uh, statement of what he believes to be factual. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover so do, do you want me to release uh, to you the king of the Jews? And of course, they said, no, they want Barabbas. Now, pay attention to the dialogue. Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus does not offer a direct response to the question. But he replies with a question of his own. He asks him a question back. Pilate then defends his position as a non Jew. What's the implication? I'm an objective bystander. I'm not familiar with what's been going on between you and your fellow countrymen. Jesus then expresses a fact or makes a truth claim that his kingdom is spiritual and then Pilate makes a truth claim, at least 
he makes the, uh, a statement of the claim that he believes Jesus is making. You are a king then. Jesus then affirms Pilate's statement as truth, and he appeals to reason and to truth in order to do it. And then Pilate dismisses the concept of truth and then goes on to ironically and contradictory tell the Jews that he has no basis or truth basis for a sentencing. So this is an interesting dialogue. It, it sort of is a lot like what you'll encounter if you are dialoguing with the average Canadian who believes in postmodernism. There'll be, on one hand, a denial of truth. You'll hear statements like, well, how can we ever know that there's a God? How can we ever know the Bible's true? Or, I don't believe there's a God. Or, uh, I don't believe there's such a thing as truth. But in the very conversation that you're having with that person about the nature of truth, they will be making truth claims or asking questions that in some way are rooted in truth claims. So this is interesting. So the problem is that uh, I would suggest to you that postmodernism is two things. It's actually unlivable. One can't be consistently a postmodernist. One cannot consistently downplay or deny the validity of objective truth and live. I mean, your mind won't even allow you to think without grabbing onto certain categories of truth, at least things that you perceive to be true. And secondly, it's inconsistent. For instance, how can you ask a question of anything if there's no objective answer of anything? How can you sit in judgment if there's no truth to be determined? And of course, many who are not Christians and are postmodernists will say, well, we don't believe in judging people. But they will judge you if you judge other people. They won't give you the liberty to judge other people. They would judge you to be wrong for judging other people, which again, in and of itself, is unlivable and inconsistent. And third, how can you appeal to any basis, whatever that basis might be, if there is no basis for anything? A postmodernist, in fact, can't even rightly say, well, here's my basis for not believing that there is truth, because... The basis implies that there's some truth that you're basing your idea that there's no truth on. So it's, it's a very strange and inconsistent way of thinking, but it is not particularly new. It's been around for a long, long time. It just happens to have sort of reared its ugly head in full force in the last number of decades. Now, I also find within Jesus' response some clues I call them clues because they're not like airtight arguments. They're not the be-all and end-all to apologetics. But he gives us some clues, some, some insight into how we might want to respond to questions like, all religions are the same, they essentially teach the same thing, all paths lead to God, no religion is right, or there is no such thing as truth. Uh, let me share three of them with you. They're in your notes. Ask questions of the postmodernists that draw out conclusions. I personally, obviously I don't know the answer to every question that anyone might ask me about the nature of my faith. Okay, I've had a, a lot of discussions with people of a lot of different faiths, but sometimes people will ask you questions that you've never been asked before. And what often happens with people like us who are interested in defending our faith and articulating our faith 
all of a sudden we sort of go through the mental card catalog and we're trying to remember what's the answer, what's the answer. I, I heard it in a sermon or Aaron mentioned it in class. I can't remember the answer, so we got all uptight. Well, let me just say straight up that one of the most effective things you can do, both to build relationship, to increase your understanding, and to give yourself time to think through the issues is ask questions about questions that you've been asked. So if someone says to you, uh, tell me why you believe in God. Well, you know, okay, what's the answer to that question? <laughs> but you can say, um, okay, well, well, that's an interesting question. Why do, you, why do you ask it? Or have you ever talked to anybody about this before? Or what were you uh, uh, taught growing up? Or have you ever talked to anybody before that believes in God? Now, what this does is this demonstrates a measure of respect. It, it helps the conversation not to start out as sort of a, 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 sort of a defensive conversation where they ask you a question, you're answering, they ask you another question, you're answering, you start to get mad at each other. It demonstrates an interest in their personhood, their story, their history, their background, their beliefs. But it also sort of allows you time to think and understand more the question behind the question. Because someone might say to you, why do you believe that there is a God? And as you begin to talk to them, you realize they went through some horrendous suffering in their life the year before. And really the question has not proved to me that there's a God, but why is it that my life sucks so much right now? Why is it that I'm in so much pain right now? So the question behind the question might be something you, you would be interested in as well. Nevertheless, uh, Jesus asks a question of his quote-unquote postmodernist uh, in, order to, uh, in order to demand that he draws a uh, conclusion. And as conclusions are drawn out, he uh, uh, basically, he points out that he's making a true statement. Uh, Jesus also appeals uh, to reason. Uh, the human mind, by the way, operates based on reason. That doesn't mean that everyone is reasonable or that everyone thinks clearly. But the human mind is structured in such a way that it tries to reason through things, think through things. Language itself is reasonable and structured. Uh, if you think about it... Um, uh, if you speak English as your first language, you probably even think in English. If you speak another language, you, we have some Spaniards here today, uh, you probably, if you're in Venezuela, you're th kind of thinking in the language of Venezuela, Spanish, right? So you, you even think in language. Language, what language does is it is, uh, uh, words are uh, oral statements that introduce us to concepts that introduce us to the realities behind those concepts. So for instance, L-O-V-E is just a word. It's just a mixture of letters. And the mixture of letters changes depending on the language that you speak. There's nothing special about putting an L, an O, a V, and an E together in the eyes of God. You can mix it up, but it's, it's a word. That's the word we use in English. That expresses a concept, an affection, uh, an emotion, a desire, an intention, but what the concept is actually pointing to is the higher truth, the actual act or the ability to love another person. So we have reality. Reality is then converted to concepts. Concepts are then converted to language, and that's how we communicate through words back to concepts and back to reality. So when everybody thinks, no matter what culture you're in, no matter what ethos you're in, no matter what language you speak, 
Uh, we use words because that's all we have to express concepts that express the reality. So think about this for a moment. You have a brain, and it's encased within a bone skull. And in that skull, there are thoughts. My skull is closed. You can't see my brain. I've never even seen my own brain. And you can't see my brain, and I can't see your brain. But through language, I'm actually able to take concepts or ideas or experiences out of my head, my enclosed bone skull, and transfer them into yours. It's actually kind of an amazing thing, if you think about it, that I can take something that's intangible, and I can use an organ that you've never seen, and using mere words, transfer concepts into yours. And I can't see your brain, and I can't understand. I've never used your brain to think. So words are what we have to move from reality to concepts uh, to communication. And then Jesus testifies to the truth, having sort of caught a pilot in his inconsistency and appeals to scripture in order to try to change his thinking. Okay, so that's the culture within which we live. Now, in this postmodern eclectic world, uh, we have been called and commissioned to do apologetics. And so what I would like to do is to introduce you to what apologetics is, what apologetics is not. And I would like to build an argument uh, tonight that basically suggests that apologetics is part and parcel of every Christian's calling and identity. That we all should be interested in uh, defending and articulating the truth claims of the gospel. And then we're also going to talk about some different approaches to apologetics. So first of all, defining apologetics from an evangelical perspective. Well, the word apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia. That's how it's written in English letters. It looks very similar to the word apologetics. And it is found eight different times in the New Testament, the Christian New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. And it essentially means to give a verbal defense. It can simply be translated as defend, but it means to give a verbal defense. So some people say, well, I practice lifestyle apologetics. I just sort of live out the Christian life. I you know, rescue cats from trees. I help old ladies across the street. I give money to charity. Okay, that's good. That's gospel living. But that's actually not apologetics. Apologetics very specifically refers to using this thing, the mouth, to defend and give responses to the Christian faith. And it's mentioned, as, I, as I've stated, eight times. Here are the passages, Acts 21, Acts 22, 1, Acts 25, 16, uh, and 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, uh, a couple times, 2 Timothy and 1 Peter 3, 15. Now, apologetics then deals with the following things. It deals with uh, factual, uh, historical, linguistic, meaning language, scientific, properly defined, we'll talk about that over the time we have together in the next 12 weeks. Logical, we're going to talk about the nature of logic because we have to be careful that uh, our logic, our forms of logic, we don't necessarily uh, push them upon the logic of the New Testament, the Old Testament writers. In other words, the way that 
people process things in the Western world, which we think is very logical, is not necessarily the way that someone may have processed things in the ancient Near East or the Greco-Roman world. Defense is for the Christian faith, and because it's a defensive kind of thing, it implies that it's over and against the multiplicity or the plethora, the number of religious and philosophical options that exist within our world. So that's basically a definition. The Evangelical Dictionary of Theology defines apologetics as a subdivision of Christian theology. It is systematic, meaning that it's organized. It is argumentative discourse. Uh, by the way, it's okay to argue. If, just because you argue doesn't mean you're a jerk. You can argue without being rude. It just means to have robust, robust dialogue with someone. So it's an argumentative discourse in defense of things like the divine origin and authority of the Christian faith. Now there's two assumptions that frame the history of evangelical apologetics. Historically, evangelicals affirm that the Bible is authoritative. We do not mean by this, I want you to hear this clearly, that everything there is to know is in the Bible. That's, obviously, that's not true. The Bible doesn't tell you how to build plastic tables. The Bible doesn't tell you how to install carpet. The Bible doesn't introduce you to mathematics. So it's not, it's not that there's no truth outside of the Bible. Of course we believe there's truth outside of the Bible. But that it is sort of the final authority on matters of faith and practice. And therefore, uh, evangelicals feel comfortable uh, functioning as exclusivists. In other words, historically, those who are evangelical will feel comfortable saying, not arrogantly or pridefully, no, we are right and you are wrong. Biblical Christianity is true, and all other truth claims are fundamentally flawed. Doesn't mean there's not truth in them, but they are fundamentally flawed at their most foundational level. So it is exclusivist when it comes to the Christian faith vis-a-vis -vis other religious systems. Therefore, uh, evangelical apologetics tends to be exclusivist in its orientation, and it tends to be argumentative rather than collaborative. Now, that doesn't mean that relationally you can't be a collaborative personality and still be robustly defending your faith. So if you're meeting with someone in a coffee shop, you can be collaborative in terms of giving them time to speak, then you have time to speak. Then you don't cut them off. You allow them to articulate their perspective. Uh, you ask them questions, you allow them to ask you questions. You know, you pay for the coffee one time, they pay for the coffee the next time. So in that sense, you can be collaborative. But, but the mindset of the evangelical apologists is fundamentally, we've, we've encountered truth, and we're going to do everything we can to convince you of it and to articulate that. Uh, historically, uh, theologians have also talked about the three-legged stool of, of faith. I know this isn't much of a stool, and there's actually four legs on it. But if um, the top of this stool is, is uh, Christianity, biblical Christianity, then uh, the one leg that holds up the stool is theology. Theology is uh, the discipline that systematizes the truth claims of Scripture. And theology then deals with the content of the Christian faith, what we actually believe about God, Christ, Holy Spirit, end times, Bible, sin, salvation, angels, demons, and so forth. The, uh, the other leg is uh, ethics. We're very much interested in ethics, not just uh, 
argumentative ethics, like is it right or wrong to have an abortion, or is it right or wrong to support gay marriage, or is it right or wrong to go to war, not just the sort of hot-button debatables, but ethics actually refers to anything to do with morality. How do you live the Christian faith? It includes the things that I've mentioned, but it also includes stuff like how do I treat my wife? How do I raise my kids? How do I handle my money? Those are ethical questions. And then finally, the third leg is apologetics. And apologetics is essentially the art and science of defending the Christian faith over and against other competing truth claims or worldviews or world religions, okay? And I would like to suggest to you that if you grow in each of these three areas, the top's going to be a lot stronger. Your faith is going to be a lot stronger. So learn your Bible, learn how to live out your faith, and learn how to defend your faith, right? Now, what are evangelicals best at? Probably the first, learning their Bibles. They're kind of eh, a little inconsistent living it out, but we try. And apologetics, many of us don't ever get around to. But I think we probably should. And obviously you're here tonight, so I don't have to convince this crowd of that. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the nature of faith. Faith is a funny word, often used, most often poorly defined or poorly understood. So I want to talk a little bit about faith, and as part of our conversation about what a faith, what, what faith is, we're going to uh, define a little bit further uh, the nature of reason, the nature of evidences, and all this kind of good stuff. So uh, the Latin reformers, meaning guys like Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, the guys that most of whom were born into the Latin church, the Roman Catholic church that spoke Latin, wrote in Latin, and read a Latin Bible, these guys learned Latin, preached in Latin, so when they became biblical Christians, when they were saved by God's grace, many of their early writings or the language that they used, they still use Latin because it was kind of the lingua franca, the common language of their religious world. And three words that often come up in their conversations is they tried to describe to their fellow theologians and the common man what is faith they used three words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. And uh, these words are sort of, have sort of been passed down in conversations about apologetics and are still part of theological discourse today. Uh, so here it is. Uh, notitia refers to content. It refers to the basic claims of Christianity. There is a God. This God is triune. Uh, this God... Uh, is composed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to earth, or sorry, the, the Son of God came to earth, was incarnated in Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, lived 33 years, was uh, murdered, uh, put in a grave, resurrected on the third day, and, and, and salvation is by grace through faith alone. And these basic concepts of the Christian faith are, uh, it's called notitia, it's the content of the Christian faith. And so to have true faith, one actually has to believe in these things. One can't say, well, no, it's just about my relationship with God. I just love God. I just feel him in my heart. And, you know, I saw him in the cry of a baby and the song of a sparrow, and that's, that's my God. No, actually, true belief, true faith, has as its heart content, 
So you, you actually can, without being, you might be perceived as rude and arrogant, you, you actually can say to someone who says, Jesus is not the only begotten Son of God. You're not a Christian. The Bible's not the Word of God. You actually can say, actually, you're not a Christian then. Uh, well, I'm a person of faith, but I don't believe Jesus is coming back. Well, then you're not a Christian. Uh, I'm a person of faith, but I don't believe, um, whatever, God exists. Then you're not a Christian. Okay, so there's a content to the faith that one needs to adhere to. And we sort of usually boil those down to like the big five or the big six. Uh, God exists, God is triune, Jesus Christ came to this world, born of a virgin, he's coming back, and salvation is by grace through faith alone, right? So we're not talking about necessarily uh, belief whether you should be immersed or poured in baptism, but sort of the, the basic heart of the Christian faith, you have to believe that to have true faith. But there's something else you have to have. You can't just sort of be aware of it. You have to assent to it. And so the word assensus refers to intellectual assent, like a mental choice, I believe that to be true. So you have to believe it to be true, not just be aware of it. And thirdly, fiducia is personal trust or surrender. Uh, not to reuse old illustrations that you probably heard in Sunday school for those of you who are in church, but uh, the, the, one of the illustrations that's often used is the chair illustration, right? So a no, uh, notitia is this is steel and this is wood, and it's a chair. And then a census is, I believe this chair will hold me up. And then fiducia is when you park your butt on the chair, right? So that's kind of a rough illustration of what we're talking about. And biblically, faith is composed of all three of those. Now, the reason why I emphasize this is because if you've had sloppy preaching, you might have bought into the idea that faith is only fiducia. It's just sort of like a, a personal thing, a trust in something, but you're not even sure you've described or defined what that something or someone is. And we need to push back and say, well, that's important. Obviously, you need to surrender to it, assent to it, but there's actually a category, there's actually categories of truth and statements of truth that compose biblical Christianity. We also see in the scriptures that there are some examples of apologetics or defense of the Christian faith. These are not comprehensive uh, examples, but I want to point out a few to you to sort of build the case, I guess, that apologetics is a biblical thing. Let's look first at Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 10. And uh, why don't we do this? If, if you'd like to read that out loud and you're there, please, uh, please do so for the rest of the class. Acts 19, verses 8 to 10. Okay, thank you. So notice the words reasoning, speaking boldly, persuading. And then when people said, get lost, he left and went on to someone else. Uh, by the way, this is important because I, I feel no obligation to talk to someone like 15 times about the same thing. 
I may talk to someone once or twice, but one of the things you'll find in apologetics is a lot of people who waste your time. So I used to have a Muslim friend regularly over. We'd have shawarma together. We'd talk about Christianity. After like the third or fourth time, I wasn't getting anywhere in with him. I don't hang out with him anymore because it's a waste of my time. And there's a lot of other people out there that may be open and willing to have a conversation with me. So, you know, it doesn't mean you need to give up the first time, but some people make one person their pet apologetic project for like 20 years. And obviously they love that person, they want the best for that person, but newsflash, we can't convert people. But we can do the best job that we can in describing and articulating and calling someone to response, but sometimes you've got to lace up your shoes and move on to the next town, so to speak. So here's an example of Paul doing that. And then let's go over to John, 1 John 1. Now, this is not a conversation, uh, this is not an illustration or an example of John having a conversation with someone, like we just read about. But uh, this is John's introduction to one of his letters to the churches. And notice how he kind of <clears throat> comes out of the gates in 1 John 1, 1 to 3. Would someone read that for us? Thank you. So the, the words that stand out to me are sort of those um, words of evidence. He, as he's about to share his message, he, he, he refers to things like, hey guys, I've heard this, I've seen it, I've touched it, I've experienced it. This kind of language is in the text. And Clearly, the writer is very convinced because he has thought through and had some sort of a personal encounter, not just an emotional encounter, but a full-fledged encounter with some truth that he wants to communicate to his listeners. So he uses eyewitness testimony, uh, sort of proof or evidence, as you might say, to introduce the message that he's about to share. And then uh, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, He, he's quoting from Old Testament prophecy, obviously, here. And there's a whole fascinating field of study in biblical studies about how New Testament writers use Old Testament texts to build cases and arguments. But here, uh, it'll, it'll suffice to say that Peter, and we're not going to read all this, but in Acts chapter 2, if you look at especially verse 16 and following, he goes back, he takes a prophecy that was probably written in and around 700 years earlier, we think Joel was written around the 6th, 7th, 8th century BC. And he takes this and he declares that this prophecy has come true in their own time uh, and place in history. So he, you, he appeals to Old Testament prophecy to support what we call the Pentecost event. So there's a little bit of a, a defensive 
apologetic dimension to that sermon that he's about to preach. Now, um, some key figures and their views of apologetics. Uh, E.J. Carnell suggested that apologetics is the branch of Christian theology that answers the question, is Christianity rationally defensible? It is the task of the apologist to arrange answers to critics who pose objections against things like Christ, salvation, or the truth of the Bible. According to Carnell, the purpose of apologetics is to glorify God by defending his words and to eliminate any excuse. I love this language, any excuse that the critic may have for repenting on the grounds that Christianity is illogical. So it's not to make the person repent, and it's not to bring about the repentance, but it's to push away some of the excuses that people might have. So someone might say, well, uh, I don't know if Jesus actually existed. Well, lo and behold, there's actually evidence that one can present that Jesus existed. Okay, Jesus existed. I don't really know if he performed miracles. Well, there's actually evidences that you can present that Jesus performed miracles. And so you begin to push away the human obstacles to sort of best position that person for God to work and for them to put faith in Jesus Christ. Bernard Ram defined apologetics as the strategy of setting forth the truthfulness of the Christian faith and its right to the claim of the knowledge of God. Uh, according to Ram, the question of strategy, that is how is truth applied to Christianity, is the basic bedrock in Christian apologetics. Norman Geisler described the central task of the apologetic approach in the following way. The heart of this apologetic approach is that the Christian is interested in defending the truth that Jesus is the Son of God and the Bible is the Word of God. These are the two things that are most important to him. However, prior to establishing these two pillars on which the uniqueness of Christianity is built, one must establish the existence of God, for it makes no sense to speak about an act of God, like a miracle, confirming that Jesus Christ is the Son of God or the Bible is the Word of God, unless, of course, there is a God who can have a son and can speak a word. William Lane Craig suggests that apologetic is, apologetics is a theoretical discipline that has practical application. He defines it as that branch of theology that seeks to provide a rational justification for the truth claims of the Christian faith. A couple more. Gordon R. Lewis, apologetics is not the same as theology. He defined apologetics as the science and the art of defending Christianity's basic truth claims. The thing I like about that, I don't necessarily like the word science because it's, it's not always defined properly, but let's just, for the sake of conversation, say science refers to facts. There is the factual side. You can actually learn to present certain facts, but there's also an art to it. And just to give you an example, which I've already given you, asking questions, I think is an art in all good conversation, but it's especially a good art and a good strategy in apologetics because it draws out underlying questions. It puts people at ease and opens up doors to discuss things that uh, maybe that person would even be thinking about wanting to discuss. Uh, Lewis juxtaposed the difference between theology and apologetics, saying, theology presupposes the primary tenets of Christianity and sets forth their implications in systematic detail. That's what we did in the last class, right, last fall, for those of you who are here. Apologetics, on the other hand, examines Christianity's most basic presuppositions. It considers why we should start with Christian presuppositions rather than others. So why should we start with the presupposition that there is a God, or God loves people, or 
He's a God who's interested in salvation. So we discuss those presuppositions. So contemporary evangelical apologetics, therefore, may be eclectically defined as the apologetics of the last half of the 20th century, first half of the 21st, that is consistent with the central beliefs of historic Christianity about Christ, Bible, God, salvation, sin, eternal life. It is scientific in part, it's artistic in part, it's strategic in part, it's rational and it's practical in that it defends Christian presuppositions against non-theistic worldviews. We'll describe what that is. Non-Christian theism. There are other people who believe in God that aren't Christians, like Muslims, like Jews. And atheism, those who say there is no God. It defends the assertion that there is a God who can have a son and can speak a word. It's also a discipline of theology in that it defends the truths that Jesus is the Son of God, the Bible's the Word of God. Its purpose is to glorify God and bring mankind unto repentance. So uh, one thing I want to sort of stress based upon that last statement is it's kind of difficult to defend the content of the Christian faith if you're unfamiliar with it. So uh, if you want to grow as an apologist, you also have to grow as a theologian. So you have to grow in your understanding of the content of Christianity, not just the strategies we use to articulate it, but you have to learn about Jesus, God's salvation, and the, 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 the claims of Christ have to sort of make sense to you, and then you're going to be able to articulate them all, all the much easier. I'll let you in on a little, a little secret of mine. Um, whenever I study the Bible, I... I'm, I often ask myself the question, okay, I believe it to be true, whatever it is I'm studying, but why did God choose to tell us this out of all the things he could have told us? Because obviously God's revelation to us is limited. We don't know everything there is to know about God. We have 66 books. We have the words of prophets and apostles. So it's limited. I mean, the gospel writers even say that if they wrote down everything Jesus said, it'd fill all the books in the world. So it's limited. So the question is, okay, out of all the information that God could have given to us, why this? Why this information? So when I study the Bible, when I, when I preach sermons on the Trinity, I want to ask myself, like, why is that an important doctrine? Why, do, why does it matter that God is triune? You get into conversations about God's relationality and therefore his desire to have relationships. Or we might have a conversation about the nature of salvation and preaching hard and I'm defending a, a particular uh, concept of salvation that I see in the Bible. But I'm asking myself, why does this matter? In other words, we don't just preach truth into a vacuum. We don't just preach truth into a void. God doesn't just write stuff down to fill our heads with information. Truth matters. Every truth claim in the Bible in some way, shape, or form matters. Believe it or not, the genealogies of the Bible are important. We have these jokes about Leviticus. You know, if we were to throw out any Bible, it would be Leviticus. Who needs to know about all these laws? And It's boring. You know, we're reading through the Bible. Genesis is great. Exodus is great. Number. Leviticus, oh, you know, I gave up my read through the Bible because I was in Leviticus. Or why do we have First and Second Kings? And then they say the exact same thing again in First and Second Chronicles. Why, like, why do we need to know all this stuff? Well, in, in actual fact, there's a reason. There's actually a reason for all of this stuff. 
And if you become a good student of the Bible, you'll understand the reasons. Now, the reason why I emphasize that when you study truth, you need to think about why it matters is because when you are doing apologetics, it is like a thousand times easier to remember the truth of Christianity if you know what difference it makes. Because you'll have lived it out. It'll, it'll become part of you. So the Trinitarianism actually affects my worship life. And because it affects my worship life, if someone says, tell me about the Trinity, it's a whole lot easier for me to tell you about the Trinity because it actually affects my worship life than if I just learned it in seminary and I, I can't remember. Is, it, is God three and one, two and three? Uh, it's all confusing to me. No, because it affect, I allow it to affect my worship life. So the point is, allow truth to affect the way you live, think, and feel. And then when you're discussing and defending Christianity, it, it'll just come much easier to you to describe it, to articulate it, and to defend its necessity. Make sense? Two major views that Christians historically have adopted when it comes to apologetics. I'll introduce them briefly, and then we'll take a break, and then I'm going to come back and introduce what I'm calling a mediating view. So two views, the big fancy words are evidentialism or rational evidentialism. And the other view is presuppositionalism or sometimes it's called reformed apologetics. So evidentialism versus presuppositionalism. They are actually theoretically at odds with each other. They're not two different angles, they're two different ways of approaching apologetics that butt heads. So rational evidentialism is held by men like R.C. Sproul, maybe some of you have heard of him, Norm Geisler, and in a nutshell, rational evidentialism says, look, humanity has been marred by sin. We've been damaged by sin. It's affected our minds, our hearts, our attitudes, our actions. We can't get around it. But our mental facilities or faculties are still intact, we still think, we still process, we still can draw conclusions. And although we're affected by total depravity, meaning that we are unable to impress God or please God by our own effort, we still think. And therefore, since faith involves, at least in part, assent to intellectually perceived facts, the presentation of rational evidence is fundamental to saving faith. So in other words, you can talk someone, essentially, into belief in Christianity. You can't say, but you can actually present enough evidence, enough logic that someone can become convinced of Christianity. Now, not everybody agrees that that's how we should approach apologetics, but some people do. So there's another view called presuppositionalism. And I know, John, you asked me about this many months ago. And one of the major proponents of presuppositionalism is a man by the name of Cornelius Van Til. He is a reformed theologian. And presuppositionalists like him insist that the doctrine of sin, the way the Bible talks about the sin of humanity, especially the doctrine of total depravity, which is we are completely unable to reach out to God in and of ourselves. It requires God's grace. That therefore it is pointless to differentiate apologetics defending the faith from evangelism, the proclamation of the gospel, the cross of Jesus Christ, the call to repentance. 
So he says that one can present all the argumentation possible, like logical arguments, rational arguments. You can like debunk evolution. You can debunk Hinduism, Buddhism, Jehovah's Witnessism, all these other isms. You can do all of that till you're blue in the face. But the unregenerate person, the sinful person, will not respond to Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So that in fact, he says that true faith True belief in God has to be accepted as a presupposition. Now, what would be one kind of significant passage that someone like that would point to? Can you think of one? That God just is? How about Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, God. So interestingly, the Bible opens without any defense of God's existence. It just says, God is, and this is what God did. Take it or leave it. Now, later, we looked at some examples of people defending that. But presuppositionalists look at the Bible and say, look, the Bible itself, which we believe is God's special revelation of himself to man, assumes the existence of God. So God is a presupposition that undergirds all things. And they would also say then that every human being has an innate understanding and acknowledgement that there is a supreme being and that they are accountable to that supreme being. They may not know his name. They may not not even refer to him as he. But there is a sense in all human beings there is something supreme to us that created us. And anyone who denies that is in fact being disingenuous to what they know deep down. So a presuppositionalist essentially says, look, it's really a work of God, so it's pointless to get into conversations about Uh, science versus the Bible, modern archaeology versus biblical archaeology, a person has to be overcome by God's spirit, accept God as a presupposition, or they will never be open to considering any of the faith claims of, of the scriptures. So those are the two views that are at odds with each other. And Uh, I'm going to suggest a mediating view that sort of does honor to both of those. But first, we'll we'll take a few minutes uh, for a break, and then we'll come back together, okay?